I believe that one of the uh, most exciting words in all of the English language is the word passion. Of course, uh, we use it to describe an intense focus or, or a dedication towards someone or something that gets our very best attention, that receives our greatest level of commitment, that, that acquires our deepest levels of devotion. In fact, here's how the dictionary defines passion. An extreme, powerful, compelling, intense emotional drive or excitement. We've all used the word passionate before to describe anybody who is consumed by or who gets fully absorbed with someone or something. One thing that we know is that everyone is going to give devotion to something in this life. We will all be passionate about something. I know people who are passionate about weightlifting, making money, hunting, quilting, food, professional sports, and we can likewise be passionate about another person, about our children, about our family. Perhaps, however, there is no greater time when we see passion played out more clearly than in a new romantic relationship. Take it from me as a former young adult and singles pastor, I can tell you this with all confidence. Because when you see this newfound passion played out, sometimes from people who seemingly didn't even have a pulse before, they suddenly become energized and, and passionate. It can be a really exciting thing to watch. Truly, people can be passionate about anything that is vitally important to them. If you don't believe that, here's a little experiment you can try next Sunday. Just try taking the seat of somebody who's been sitting in that seat for 20 years here. You'll not only get your hand bit off, but you'll see passion displayed in a really, really big way. And you know who you are. And you need to change that attitude, brother and sister. I'm just letting you know. That's a whole nother sermon. Let's get into it right now. Okay, these seats aren't, no, that's what they're. So what are you most passionate about? If I could see the captions above your head, all over this place, there'd be a hundred different things that would be popping up. But I hope the thing that you are most passionate about is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because ladies and gentlemen, our deepest passion was intended for God. And this passion for God is expressed in many different ways in the life of a believer. We tend to look at those who worship the loudest, those who uh, are most physical in their outward expressions of worship to God as the most passionate among us. But it's important, I think, to understand that passion isn't always translated as loud or physically active. Some of the most passionate people that I know, those who are deeply passionate about God, are regularly and passionately on their knees in prayer. They don't necessarily dance and shout, and yet there is nothing in their life that they are more passionate about than God. Some are passionate about giving of their time and their financial resources to the church. They give with great passion. It's just what they, they love to do. Some, are, some passionately share their faith with other people to tell others what God has done in their life. And they look literally for opportunities every day to do so. Some serve and teach in ministry with great passion. They, they love to teach and they, they love to get involved in, in shaping and molding Christ, the Christian character of other people. Some passionately serve behind the scenes. Whenever a job or, or a task needs to be accomplished, whether it's a large job or a small job, they passionately rise to the occasion and, and, and they do whatever it is that is required. See, passion for God is not simply physical, outward expressions of worship. Passion for God is a quest for him to be the fountain of our, of our very being. It is seeking his purposes and realizing his fullness in our lives without restriction and without caring about what other people think. Passion for God is realizing that this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ is the most important part of who we are. And this passion is fueled by a love for God, 
a love for his word, a love for righteousness, and a deep-seated thankfulness for the gift of salvation that we have received through Jesus Christ. So this morning as we continue in our series titled Chasing God's Heart, which is a study on the life of the King David, passion for God is the kind of passion that we're going to explore. In this series, we've been looking at some great characteristics that are found in David's heart. And today, we are going to talk about a passionate heart. Because David definitely had a passionate heart towards God. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to find a powerful story regarding passion. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in the pew pocket. We also will have all the scriptures I'm going to read will be up on the screen, and you can follow along with me. Uh, and and there, the story that we're going to look at, there's really three parts of this story with one focusing on a, uh, of a particular major character within. First of all, there is a priest named Uzzah who dies. The second scene, King David, he dances. And the third scene, that's when Michael, David's wife, the wife of the king, despises him for dancing. In a sense, it is passion that is exhibited in, in three different ways. So we'll start with Act 1, where this priest named Uzzah dies. So please allow me to set the, the, the stage of the, of the story here for you. If you were with us last week, we chronicled the fall of the life of King Saul. We came to understand that, that Saul really wasn't interested in God's leading in his life, and that was clearly exhibited by him regularly disobeying God's commands. The prophet Samuel would, would present to Saul what God wanted him to do, and Saul would always do his own thing. Obedience to God and intimacy with God was almost a foreign concept to Saul. Therefore, under Saul's reign, worship in the temple had been sadly neglected. It was just never high on the scale of importance for King Saul. In fact, one very important part of the tabernacle was no longer even there. It was captured by the Philistines some 30 years earlier. It was the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of the presence of God. Saul and most of his people thought that the ark was really no big deal at all. But now David is king and he's established his rule in Jerusalem. And David decides to bring the ark of the covenant back to the very center of his city, back to its place of prominence. And if you'll take the time to read Exodus chapter 25, of which I will not have the time to do this morning, you can learn all about the ark and God's meticulous instructions for handling it. It was a rectangular box that was about four feet long and about two feet tall. It was constructed of wood, but it was overlaid in pure gold. And according to Hebrews chapter nine, verse four, the Ark of the Covenant contained three things. There were the tablets of stone of which the Ten Commandments had been written or inscribed upon. There was a golden pot containing the manna that God had provided the children of Israel. This was manna that was given to them during those years where they were wandering aimlessly in the wilderness when they were freed from Egypt. And the third item was Aaron's rod, his staff. The scripture tells us that it, it had budded with blossoms. So the Ark of the Covenant, you've got to understand, was so sacred that no one was to touch it and no one was to ever look inside of it or they would surely die. Now, please understand, the Ark of the Covenant was not some kind of a magical box. The people of Israel were taught that this was not a source of power that they could just tap into. Instead, the ark was intended to be kind of a visible evidence of, of God's holy promises and his presence among them. And God made it very clear how the ark was to be handled by the priest. And he also provided specific instructions on how the ark was to be moved or, or transported. It had four gold rings attached to it with golden poles that ran through them, which were used to carry the ark properly. 
In fact, God instructed that those poles were not to be removed from those rings, and the poles were to be carried on the shoulders of the priest. That's how you were to move the Ark of the Covenant. So David organizes a group of 30,000 men to go and retrieve the Ark from a village where the Ark had been collecting dust for many years. Now, the main character in Act 1 is this priest whose name is Uzzah. He and his brothers were assigned the role of supervising the delivery of the ark back to Jerusalem. And I want you to try to picture this scene in your mind, if you will. The house was up on a hill, and David has put together this huge celebration. All the people were playing instruments and trying to get as excited about this event as David was for this big move. When the priest Uzzah decides to put the ark on a cart and roll it down the hill. Verse six tells us that the cattle stumbled. So Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark so it would not fall. Second Samuel 6, 7 says this, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his heir and he died there by the ark of the covenant. What a shocking thing to have happen. God strikes Uzzah down, and he died right there beside the ark during this great celebration. I think to help put this into perspective, it would kind of be like me falling down dead while I serve the communion emblems because I did it in a wrong way. Imagine if that happened, what kind of a, how that might put a damper on your Sunday morning worship experience, especially mine. Protect me, Lord. Well, as you can imagine, the celebration stopped dead in its tracks. And this whole ordeal stunned everyone that was there, including King David. And I remember the first time I ever read this story in the scriptures, I was stunned. And I remember thinking to myself, why did Uzzah have to die? One day I was reading a biblical commentary written by Eugene Peterson that helped me to understand this whole situation a little bit better. He reminds us that Uzzah's action was not simply a mistake of the moment. More likely, it was a part of his lifelong obsession with managing the ark. You see, for a period of time, Uzzah was given responsibility for the ark, and it had been kept safely in his residence. And as a result, he became passionate about the ark, about its mystery, about its its historical importance. But unfortunately, he wasn't as passionate about God, the very provider and source of all of those things. Uzzah was trying to take control because he had lost sight a long time ago of who was really in charge. But our God makes it very clear that he will not be managed by anyone And furthermore, he expects us to be obedient to his instructions. And just like it's it's just like last week when God gave specific instructions to Saul, he also provided specific instructions on how to handle the ark. Nowhere in these guidelines in the book of Exodus does it say that the, the ark was ever intended to be carried on a cart. And furthermore, Never was the ark to be touched by human hands. That was the rule. That was God's word written in the scriptures. The only way it was to be moved was on the shoulders of the Levites holding those golden poles. But Uzzah thought he had a better idea. He took a more conventional approach. Sound familiar? It's reminiscent of King Saul. You see, Uzzah had a misguided passion. He did not revere God's name. He did not revere God's plan. He was simply being disobedient at that moment. He stopped caring about what God cared about, and he didn't want to mess up with the little details that come along with complete obedience. So let me ask you this morning, when are you and I most like Uzzah? Well, I think pastors are like Uzzah when we become more passionate about our position than about our God, passionate about our duties and our responsibilities and and doing our work in order to receive compliments and accolades from men, 
for a job well done, yet putting in a place of lower prominence God's approval and not really being concerned about the one who gave us our calling, but furthermore gave us the ability to fulfill our calling. We are all like Uzzah whenever we pick and choose which commands to obey and which ones we're going to decide to just go, I'm not even going to pay attention to that. We are all like Uzzah when we covet the power from the gifts of the Holy Spirit, more than the giver of the gifts. And furthermore, fail to use those gifts for his kingdom work. We are like Uzzah whenever we treat sacred things and sacred moments casually, such as communion, or as our time, in our time of corporate worship together. We are like Uzzah whenever we reduce God to being like some kind of a genie in the bottle, seeking him only when it's convenient for us, only when we're in trouble, only when we have a need of some kind. So I believe it's very, very important not to let our passion become misguided like poor priest Uzzah did. Well, as you can imagine, David's parade came, was severely interrupted by the, the events of this day, and, and David was devastated. He thought that uh, in the eyes of the people that he lost complete face with them. David was angry at God, and I'm sure he's probably thinking, I was trying to do a good thing here, God. Why in the world did you allow this to happen? So he went back home, and he sulked for three months, and the ark stayed behind. But back in Jerusalem, after David had some time to think things over, he did his homework, and he decides to give this another try. This time, he plans to do it the right way, because David realized the error of his first plan. And that's just another reason why he was aptly given the name a man after God's own heart. You see, you can't keep a good man down. So in 1 Chronicles 15, it tells us that David prepared a place for the ark. And he calls on the priests and the Levites to consecrate themselves and to bring the ark up once again. Let's read 1 Chronicles 15, verses 12 through 15. He said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. And this is where we move into act two. This is where King David dances. And I love this act because David, uh, he, he, he stages this whole scene all over again, but this time he's determined that the priests are going to do everything exactly right and follow God's instructions meticulously. They prepared themselves and they offered sacrifices after, get this, after just taking six steps. And David enters into this sequel with every bit as much passion, if not more so than the last time. 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 15 says, so David went up to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. In his obedience, David was free. Out of genuine joy in his heart, David decided to dance. He even replaced his royal robe with garments called a linen ephod. It was a priestly outfit that was particularly appropriate for this kind of a ceremony. And this picture of David as a worshiper is one of the most beautiful scenes, I believe, in the entire Bible. I mean, think about it. Here you have a king, and yet he did not give a rip about what anybody thought about him at that moment, and he let it rip. 
His passion for God uh, was acted out in dance. It was his chosen form of worship for God at that moment. So let me ask you this morning, how do you worship? And why do you worship? Sometimes when you think about that, we can get a little bit, of, a little bit fuzzy about why it is that we worship. Why do we come here every Sunday after a day, a, a week of a very busy week of work and when we could be resting on our couch at home? And furthermore, why does God require our worship? C.S. Lewis admitted that one of his earliest stumbling blocks in coming to faith in Christ Jesus was of all the demands in the scriptures about praising God. He wondered, and these are his own words here, I quote, if God craved our worship like a vain woman craves compliments. But gradually, Lewis began to understand that worship is not a command, but it is instead a natural response. Worship is essentially adoration towards the greatness of God. And, and Lewis saw how naturally all of our enjoyment in life spontaneously flows into praise anyway. I mean, people praise a beautiful day. People praise their favorite coffee. They praise the person that they love. And then people want to urge other people to join them in their praise. Lewis writes, our praise completes our enjoyment. You see, worship is a natural, heartfelt, genuine emotional response to the character and to the works and to the grace of Almighty God. It is. But just like the priest Uzzah didn't get careless regarding the things of God overnight, David didn't just dance all of a sudden. It was a manifestation of his passion for God. David had developed a passion for God long before this moment because he regularly filled his mind with the Lord. He saw the Lord as, as his commander in chief. He saw the Lord as his shepherd, as his rock, as his refuge, as his, as his savior. The Psalms reveal how much David delighted in and dwelt on the things of God. So David's expression here of public worship was simply the result of his practicing God's presence in private ways throughout his day. David was fully alive towards God, and he was in a vital relationship with him. And it was trusting, and it was daring, and it was exuberant, and it was open. He may at times have messed up greatly in his life in some major ways, but David definitely loved his heavenly father, and his dancing was just one of his ways to express that love. And the truth is, you, you just can't be non-responsive when you have experienced the greatness and the goodness of God in your life. You see, this side of heaven, I don't think we'll ever be able to fully express to God our love for him, but we can certainly try. We can try with all our might to magnify his name, and we certainly should. So how do you respond to the living God? How do you respond for what Christ has done for you in your life? May I suggest to you this morning that it's impossible to look at God in, in light of your new life in Christ Jesus and not express it in some way. Maybe not in dance, but it has to be expressed somehow. You see, true worship involves our, our whole being. And that includes our mind, as well as our body and, and our spirit. The scriptures define a variety or describe a variety of physical postures in connection with worship, which includes standing, kneeling, clapping, lifting of the hands, lying prostrate on the floor, lifting or bowing the head and dancing. And other physical expressions should be consistent with the inner spirit of worship. But equally importantly, let me add other methods of, methods of worship that you might not perceive as worship, but truly are. These are outward expressions of passion for God, like living a life that honors him by blessing other people, 
by, by serving in your church and furthering God's kingdom, by giving of your time and your resources to his kingdom work, by, by caring enough to share his goodness with other people. That's all a part of passion for God. However it is that you choose to show passion and worship God is not as important in, uh, as the fact that you truly do need to find time to worship God. Because there's a true two-pronged blessing that comes whenever you worship. Worship is reciprocal. While blessing God with your worship, he in turn blesses you. It's, it's a win-win situation. It's just the way God does it. Worship is an adventure. And worship can be very, very personal as we see in the different methods and ways that people worship God. But one thing is for sure. Worship is essential to the health of any believer in Christ. Because the alternative is to end up dead like Uzzah. And I'm not suggesting you're going to fall dead if you fail to worship, but I am suggesting that you can become cold and dead inside when you fail to express gratitude and praise to your God. So let me ask you, when are you and I most like David? I think we're like David whenever we get filled up with so much gratitude toward God that we feel like we're going to burst unless we express it. Or whenever we walk around with a smile of joy on our face instead of a grouchy, don't approach me kind of a, of a front because of God's love in our heart. We are most like David whenever for just brief moments we are willing to let go of our image, of our control, and pour ourselves into enthusiastically worshiping God. Or whenever we celebrate with a joyful heart. So in Act 1, we have the priest Uzzah who dies. In Act 2, David dances before the Lord. Now we come to Act 3. This is where Michael, David's wife, despises him. Look at 2 Samuel 6.16. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Michael watches her husband dancing and singing and shouting from the upstairs window. As the wife of the king, Michael despises David for what she considers inappropriate and undignified behavior. She thought that David ought to look more kingly. She desired that he would surround himself with much more pomp and, and circumstance. She wanted him to be more aloof. She wanted him to be less accessible to his subjects like most kings would be. Michael was embarrassed by David's exuberance. And the Bible tells us that she was also filled with contempt. So David walks in home, walks in the door at home. He's higher than a kite from one of the most thrilling experiences of his life, and he's expecting his wife to celebrate one of his greatest triumphs of being the king. But upon entering his home, he realized that his expectations of her were totally inaccurate because Michael has words for David that dripped with cynicism and sarcasm. Verse 20 says, How glorious was the king of Israel today! uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She essentially accuses David of being vulgar and disrobing in front of the commoners. But you have to understand that there is something hidden within her criticism. And, it, and for some reason... Michael's own heart was incapable of feeling joy, was incapable of feeling adoration because her own feelings for God, for whatever reason, were dead. Michael was in many ways as dead as the priest Uzzah. She could not begin to understand David's freedom or his love for God because she was far from being free herself. Just like her father Saul, Michael's heart was cold towards the Lord. Therefore, she sought necessary to mock David for his dancing because he was alive and reckless and, and daring. 
because true worship was a foreign concept to her. Michael was focused on herself and what others would think of her and her husband. She had the worst kind of passion that there is. Michael was passionate about her own self-importance, about her own image, about her own position. So I'll ask you like I asked the other two. When are you and I most like Michael? I believe we are most like Michael when we're more concerned about how we look in the eyes of people than how God feels about the condition of our heart. Or whenever we assume that others must be phony in their worship because we can't relate to their level of exuberance. Or whenever we limit worship to a dutiful display by just going through the motions with really no heartfelt feelings towards God. I believe that God despises worship that comes from an attitude out of a sense of duty or ritual when your heart is not in it. You see, when we don't engage our hearts during worship, in essence, what we are telling God is that we don't have any feelings for him. David makes very clear to Michael that this celebration was before the Lord and for the Lord, and that he fully intended to become even more undignified. Verses 21 and 22. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. And I think that this statement from David sums up the essence of this entire story. David understood to the depths of his soul that worship was not at all about him. He realized that worship was an exclusive act reserved for God alone. And here's a breakdown that I see in this entire story. Uzzah's eyes were on his own agenda. They were on his own plan. Michael's eyes were on other people, what other people thought, her image. But David's eyes were solely and completely upon the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen of High Point, worship is the one time, maybe the only time, when we interrupt our endless preoccupation with ourselves and turn our attention toward God. It's when we focus on him in order to express our love and our gratitude. It is only then when we discover that worship is what we were made for. You see, we're all given one shot on this earth, only one. No one knows how long your shot or my shot is going to be. But I, for one, I don't want to miss my opportunity. We all have a certain potential. We all have a certain capacity. And so many of us will never, ever reach that capacity because we get lazy and we get comfortable and we lose sight of the magnitude of the precious gift we have received through salvation in Christ Jesus. I never want to forget what God has done in my life, and I want to be fully alive and living for his purposes. I want to grow in my love for God, and I, and I want to serve him, serve him in ways that involves every facet of my life. It's a tragedy, I believe, for any of us to be for, for any of us not to be fully alive in Christ Jesus. It, it just is. And, and this describes David so perfectly well because David was fully alive. He loved God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. He danced before the Lord with all of his might. You know, we will never get worship completely right until we get into heaven because it is there where for the first time we will finally be totally free, free from our ongoing awareness of ourselves and other people. But between now and then, guys, we can practice. We can. We can come to God in our full obedience. We can learn to worship, as that song said, and as Anthony talked about this morning, in spirit and in truth. 
We can learn to worship God in our everyday actions as well as the way we live our daily lives. And in those times when we become aware that others are watching, and at times we will, we can stop and we can turn our minds back toward God and we can start all over again and block that stuff out of our mind. And together, we will become men and women with a great passion for God. David had his day and his time to praise the Lord. But today is our day. David had the Ark of the Covenant. But for crying out loud, folks, we have the risen Savior in Christ Jesus. We have seen the promise fulfilled. We are living the promise that God made. We also have the Holy Spirit that takes up residency in our hearts And he is with us every moment of every day. And that alone should make us shout from the rooftops and tell the Lord how great and awesome he is. So let's not fail to express our worship to the Lord because he is worthy of our praise. The Bible says, if we fail to worship him, surely the rocks will cry out in praise. How'd you like to be standing in church during worship not engaged, thinking about the stock market or the NFL game that's coming up afterwards, and a rock suddenly appears and starts praising to God. Would that freak you out? Well, the scriptures say, and I don't know if you're going to find a rock here, but let's say you're out in the wilderness and you do that. The rocks are going to cry out in praise to God if we keep our lips shut. Let's remind each other how great and how awesome our God really is, lest we have forgotten. Let's all of us be passionate about our Lord and Savior, and let's express that passion in the way we live our lives. Church, we cannot afford to hide it under a bushel any longer. We've got to start letting it shine. We need to live out loud for Jesus in a loud way for everyone to see, and with great passion for everything that he has done in our life. In order for that to happen, we can never forget what Christ accomplished for us on the cross and the gift of salvation that he has provided for us. And so today, we are going to participate in communion together, and we are going to remember, just like Jesus asked us to. And I'd like to ask not only the worship team to come forward, but I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward so we can hand out the communion emblems to you. For some of you, those Sundays in which we have communion, they're your favorite Sundays, and for good reason. Because it's during this time when we commune with the living God. Whenever I commune with God, I I always walk away from that moment more aware than ever of his goodness towards me. God has been so good to me, and I know you feel the same way. When I think about how he saved me, and how he turned my life around when I think of the sin that I was trapped within that he delivered me from. When his presence is so real and my spirit is awakened and I become fully alive by his spirit. When I know that I have the assurance of eternal life in God's presence when my time on this earth is done. Let me tell you folks, it's, it's hard not to be passionate about that. Because it's a gift that nobody else can offer. Only Christ offers you this gift and it allows us to to literally rest in his presence. It allows me to know that beyond a shadow of a doubt where my future lies. And we need to be reminded of this regularly. And that's why I believe that Jesus established the Lord's Supper or what we refer to as, as Holy Communion. It's a moment of time when we remember all the blessings that God has, has given to us through his son, Christ Jesus. And I think it's very important for me to always mention from this platform that this is a sacred moment. And therefore, it must be treated by us as such. This is not an activity that anybody wants to enter into without reverence for God or in an unworthy manner, as the scriptures say. Bible offers us instructions in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So if we follow this scripture, it's a time where every one of us needs to examine ourselves. Do we have any unconfessed sin in our lives? Are we harboring unforgiveness against another person? Are we carrying around beliefs and attitudes that go in direct opposition to God's truth and contrary to what God would require of us in our life? Is your heart in alignment with the Lord or are you in rebellion with what he wants to accomplish within you? Most importantly, are we saved? Have we received Christ's gift of salvation? Well, if not, now is the best time to make things right. Now is the time to confess these things before God. Now is the time to ask Christ into your heart and as so as not to participate in this moment in an unworthy manner. Before we take communion, we always have a time of silent prayer and reflection before God. During this time, all you'll hear is the music continuing to play softly behind me. And I want everyone here to reach out to God in prayer in your own words and in your own way. And please don't worry about what to say because God reads your heart long before he hears or tries to understand what you're saying. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you've never received salvation before, you can do so during this time by simply acknowledging Jesus as Lord in the only way to God the Father. Thank him for dying on the cross for your sin and then confess and repent of your sin. Then offer him lordship over your life today by accepting him as savior and accepting his salvation. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this can be the part or the beginning of a new life for you where your past stays right there. Your past is now forgiven. You are given a fresh start. The Bible says you become a new creation. If it is your desire today, all you need do, to do is express those things in a sincere prayer between you and the Lord. And he is faithful to wipe away all of your sin, all of your transgressions, praise God. And then you can participate in this moment in a way that is worthy for the sacrifice that Christ made for you. But it's important for me to also say here this morning that if your heart is not right before the Lord and you are not willing to make things right before the Lord, then I do not want you to participate in communion because you will be eating and drinking judgment to yourself and you do not want to participate in that. So everyone in this place, let's take a moment to meditate in God's presence. Make sure that none of us are participating in this time, this sacred moment in an unworthy way. Let's bow our heads in silent prayer and meditation before the Lord. Father, you have heard our words. Most importantly, you have read our hearts. We wanna thank you this morning for Jesus. We wanna thank you for the forgiveness of sin. I want to thank you for salvation and our new life in Christ Jesus. We give you all praise, honor, and glory, Lord. And we ask you to bless these emblems we're about to receive. Bless those who are partaking of them. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. In Luke 22, it says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before he went to the cross. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine 
until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As you eat of this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered body of our Lord. And as the scripture says, be reminded that by his stripes, we are healed. You may eat the bread. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying in, in verse 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was poured out for you. As you drink of this juice, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood of Jesus that was shed to atone for your and my sin. You may drink the juice. Would you all please stand to your feet? We are going to sing, How Great Thou Art. It's one of the most beautiful hymns, I believe, of all time. The words have great meaning and are an appropriate song to be for us to sing as we talk this morning about passionately worshiping the Lord. As we sing this together, I want you to sing to an audience of one. I want you to blank out the person that's beside you, the front of you, behind you. I want you to just pretend yourself in this sanctuary all by yourself. And I want you to put your eyes and your heart and your soul and your spirit and focus completely upon the Lord. I want you to sing with passion this morning and then when we're done singing, I will close in prayer. with me please precious Lord we thank you for your word we thank you that everything written in there was written in there on purpose and for a reason for us to have a better understanding of who you are 
of your need and your desire to have a relationship with us, a meaningful, engaging relationship where we commune with one another and have conversation in prayer and where we seek you in prayer and where we worship your name. Father, I pray for my church family as well as myself that we would take away all the distractions and all the things that sometimes put us in a hole, put us in a place where we're afraid to step out that we would allow ourselves to worship you truly in spirit and in truth without caring what others think, without caring what others say, because you're truly the only thing that matters. I pray you'll impress that upon our hearts this week as we look at life and everything in its fullness, everything that we have, all the blessings you've given us, the only thing that really matters is you. Brand that in our hearts today, I pray. And Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Father, I pray that those conversations would be designed to build people up and not tear them down. That we would shine with bright lights in a very dark world. And that brightness comes from the love of God that dwells in our heart. Let it be evident for all to see. Pray, Father, that it would shine so brightly that people would approach us and say, what is it about you that is different? And of course, we know it's the love of Christ and we have the opportunity to share your goodness with them. Father, I pray for a divine appointment for each one of us this week that someone will cross our path and we will have the opportunity to share your goodness with them. And if not, lead them to the Lord, invite them to church with us, and watch as you do a transforming work in their heart. Father, I pray that between now and the time we gather together again, you would keep us safe from sickness, from disease. You would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us. Let your angels go before, behind, and beside us in all that we do and for protection. And as we leave here today, Father, I pray that we would walk out of here in love love for our fellow man, no matter what their condition, love for one another with the intent of, of, of loving everyone who we come into contact with. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus and everyone said, amen. Thank you for being here.